You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. The Tito's handmade vodka was ice cold, condensation trickling down the copper metal shaker. It's got to be fresh lime, they drawled. Tart, but balanced. They weren't normally this finicky about cocktail hour. But with Tito's, it had to be perfect. Simple syrup, the final ingredient. The sound of shaking filled the room to the brim. For the perfect pour at next week's book club, try the Tito's Gim Literature. Find the recipe at titosvodka.com. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof. Crafted to be savored responsibly. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and this week I have a tidbit about sofa, couch, and other words for that piece of furniture, and a meaty middle about idioms that use the word skeleton. But first, I have to share this review from Simon J. Banderob in Canada at the top of the show, because the coincidence was amazing. Simon used to listen while volunteering at the Bread and Puppet Theater Company in Vermont. But get this. He wrote, quote, Now that I'm back in Canada, I often listen to Grammar Girl while playing video games, like Civilization. Grammar Girl, when you were giving a shout-out to Civilization, I was assigning routes to your favorite units, the caravan, unquote. That kind of blew my mind. (laughs) Simon also asked me to keep in mind dialects of English besides British and American. He said, quote, us Commonwealth folks have our own style guides and spellings that don't necessarily cleave to British or American English, unquote. That's a lot tougher for me, but I will try, Simon. In fact, today's tidbit touches a bit on Canadian English, so let's get to it. What you call a long upholstered piece of living room furniture depends on where you live and when you were born. For example, couch and sofa are currently the most popular names, but my parents called it a Davenport because that name was once popular in the upper Midwest, which is where my parents grew up. The name came from the A.H. Davenport Company, a manufacturer of this type of furniture in the mid-1800s and into the early 1900s, including pieces that furnished the White House. From a Google Ngram search in books, it looks as if Davenport peaked in the United States in the mid-1940s, after which its use dropped dramatically and then has been stable at a lower rate since around 1970. In 2009, I posted a non-scientific online poll asking what you call a long upholstered piece of furniture, and nearly 4,500 people replied. Couch was the clear winner, with 71% of the responses. Sofa was next, with 27% of the responses. And all the others had fractions of a percent. Some people told me that lounge, which I neglected to include in the poll, is a dominant term in Australia. Anecdotally, I've seen the assertion that sofa is proper and couch is slang. But I couldn't find any data or reference books to back that up. It may simply come from the fact that sofa is more popular in Britain and couch is more popular in the United States, and some British people consider American terms to be less proper. 
Also, Couch probably won so dramatically in my online poll because the respondents skewed American. There may also be differences by class, at least in Britain, that didn't show up in my poll. For example, I found a linguistics corpus study that says middle-class people in Britain were more likely to use sofa or couch, whereas working-class people were more likely to use settee. Dictionaries say that couch is actually the older term and has been around since Middle English and comes from an old French word meaning to put into place, to lie down, or to put into bed. Sofa made its appearance in English at least a couple hundred years later, coming from the Arabic word sofa or sufa, which originally meant a bench. Sofa came to describe the piece of furniture we think of today in the early 1700s. In the old days, a couch may or may not have had a back, or may have had a half back, and may have had only an armrest on one end or had a raised end, such as a psychiatrist's couch. But my impression is that today sofa and couch are both regularly used to describe furniture that has both a back and arms. Some responses to the poll led me to believe that Chesterfield is more popular in Canada than in the U.S. and may also have some traction in California. And some online searching further convinced me that Chesterfield is more popular in Canada than in the U.S. For example, here's a line from a book called Melanie Blue Lake's Dream, written in 1995 by a Saskatchewan teacher named Betty Fitzpatrick Dorian. While Rachel jacked up the thermostat, Melanie curled up in a shivering ball on the Chesterfield. And here's another example from a nonfiction book called Growing Up, Childhood in English Canada from the Great War to the Age of Television by Neil Sutherland. In this example, a woman is talking about her grandmother and says, I always came and sat right beside her on the Chesterfield to watch TV. Dictionary.com also notes that Chesterfield is chiefly Canadian. Unfortunately, Google Ngram searches only let me filter by British English and American English, so I can't track Canadian trends over time. But I did find a linguistic study that says Chesterfield in Canada is much like Davenport in the United States. It was a common term years ago and is still sometimes used by older people, but among younger Canadians, couch is the common term. Multiple sources say the furniture gets its Chesterfield name from the 19th century Earl of Chesterfield, Lord Philip Stanhope, who may have commissioned a long seat with, quote, deep buttoned upholstery, rolled arms, and equal back and arm height, unquote, so his noble visitors would have a comfortable place to sit. So to sum up, couch and sofa are currently by far the most popular terms in the U.S. and U.K., British writers appear to favor sofa, and American writers appear to favor couch. And you may occasionally hear Divan, Settee, Chesterfield, and Davenport, especially among older people. Finally, for a bit of fun, I laughed at this argument one respondent made to prove that the correct term is couch. He said, who ever heard of a sofa potato? <laughs> Not only was the difference between all these terms interesting, but I also hope it might be helpful to people participating in National Novel Writing Month, which starts November 1st. If you're writing a period piece or a novel set in Canada or Australia, maybe now you have a better idea of how to describe your living room seating. 
Halloween is nearly here, so today we're going to talk about some frightening phrases and their origins, specifically phrases with the word skeleton. A skeleton is made up of all the bones in the body, from the femur in your upper leg, which is the biggest bone in the human body, to the stapes, the teeny tiny bone that conveys sound from your outer ear to your inner ear. We all have a skeleton, but hopefully not all of us have a skeleton in the closet. That's because a skeleton in the closet refers to a dark family secret, a source of pain, shame, or tragedy. The expression evokes the image of a household that seems perfectly normal until you start poking around and find an unpleasant surprise. Fiction is full of such skeletons. TV's Downton Abbey had a ton, from Lady Mary's indiscretion in season one to Lady Edith's trip to the continent in season four. We won't spoil anything, but suffice it to say that both women had a secret they were desperate to keep. Edgar Allan Poe's narrator in The Telltale Heart had a literal skeleton in the closet, or rather under the floor, that he was trying to hide. And Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre featured the ultimate skeleton in the closet, a family secret kept under lock and key until the day it escaped. FYI, this term was first used in literature by William Thackeray in 1845, but it's believed to have been used earlier in common talk. Let's look now at skeleton crew. A skeleton crew refers to a team of workers that's been paired to the bone, reduced to the minimum number of people needed to get the job done. For example, a restaurant might normally have five servers on the floor and one person bussing tables. On a quiet night, though, they might get by with a skeleton crew of just three servers, with each of them taking turns cleaning tables. This phrase draws on one of the shades of meaning of skeleton, the bare outline or most necessary features of something. This meaning is also used in the phrase skeleton key. A skeleton key is a key that's made to open many different locks. It can do this because most of the pointy bits on its blade have been filed away, leaving only one bit at the end. That bit allows you to turn the key and throw back the bolt on many different locks. In other words, a skeleton key uses the bare minimum of metal needed to do the job. By the way, old-fashioned skeleton keys kind of look like a skeleton, but that's a coincidence, not the cause of the name. And here's an interesting phrase you may not have heard, the skeleton at the feast. This skeleton is meant to remind us that life holds tragedy as well as pleasure, that even when we're feeling most alive, death is always nearby. This idea is first mentioned by Plutarch, a Greek biographer born way back in 46 CE. He wrote the Moralia, essays on a whole range of ethical, political, and literary topics. In one of the essays, he describes the, quote, skeleton which in Egypt they are wont, with fair reason, to bring in and expose at their parties, urging the guests to remember that what it is now they soon shall be. It does not incline the guests to drinking and enjoyment, but rather to a mutual friendliness and affection, unquote. Plutarch is saying that ancient Egyptians actually brought a real skeleton or a wooden image of a corpse to the dinner table. 
A skeleton at the feast is also mentioned by Petronius, a Roman author who was one of Plutarch's contemporaries. In his comic novel, The Satyricon, he describes a dinner party given by Trimalcio, an immensely rich freedman who's a former slave. During the party, Trimalcio brings in, quote, a silver skeleton put together in such a way that its joints and backbone could be pulled out and twisted in all directions, unquote. He flings the skeleton around so it falls into different postures, and then he recites this poem. Oh, woe, woe, man is only a dot. Hell drags us off, and that's the lot. So let us live a little space at least while we can feed our face. So whether you take Plutarch's advice and embrace friendship this Halloween, or take Petronius's advice and just feed your face with candy, we hope you have a wonderful, safe holiday. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. Thanks to everyone who wrote reviews and told me where they listen recently. I'm not exactly sure how to say this one, but Year P. Dollar Sign is also from Canada like Simon J. Banderob and says, I listen before I sit down to write. Mulhadi listens on daily walks on the shore of the Nile in Khartoum, Sudan. I think you're the first person I've heard from who's from Sudan, which is very cool. VWM17, a French-American, listens from Athens, Greece. Salem Pens listens in the car and at night. Jen Dollar listens on the Metro in Washington, D.C. And Chris listens to the podcast while taking his dog for her morning walk. Thanks again to everyone who wrote reviews at Apple Podcasts and Amazon, including Aspiring Tax Attorney, King Rockafan, and Kryptonite. It really helps. And when I get frustrated after spending 30 minutes trying to figure out whether technically a couch should have a back or not, I think of all of you, the guardians of the grammary all over the world, and it keeps me going. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find all my old articles and podcasts at quickanddirtytips.com. That's all. Thanks for listening. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everyone knows that the best way to tell a good story is over a good drink. Spirit in a Bottle, Tells and Drinks from Tito's Handmade Vodka, brings them together. In its first ever cocktail book, Tito's offers fans recipes, mixology tips, and a never-before-seen look at its journey from a one-room distillery to becoming America's favorite vodka. Order your copy today at titosvodka.com book. Read it and sip with Tito's. 40% alcohol by volume, namely 80 proof, crafted to be savored responsibly.